ransomware, MFA, extortion, fraudulent fund transfer schemes. These topics and many others make up the key findings section of the eighth annual Data Security Incident Response Report, informally known as the DSIR Report. Each year, the incident response attorneys within the Digital Assets and Data Management Group, or DATAM, provide statistics and analytics around the incidents they encountered the previous year in a report that is eagerly received by clients, vendors, media outlets, and frankly, anyone interested in or tasked with their company's digital asset and risks. I'm Amy Kotman, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. In our sixth episode in the series exploring the 2022 DSIR report, we put ransomware front and center. Our guests today are Joe Brumer, partner and member of our Digital Risk Advisory and Cybersecurity Team, and Elise Elam, an associate in our Digital Risk Advisory and Cybersecurity Team. Welcome to the show, Joe and Elise. Thanks, Amy. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. Elise, can you begin by telling us, is ransomware here to stay? Yes, absolutely. Ransomware is here to stay. It may look different a year from now or five years from now but it is definitely not going away. And what kind of trends are you seeing year to year? Well, of the matters we handled last year, 37% involved ransomware. Compare that to the prior year where ransomware made up 27% of our matters. So again, ransomware is not going anywhere and in fact is increasing. Just a few years ago in 2019, there were only 15 active ransomware threat actor groups. Fast forward to last year, we handled matters involving over 80 different variants. And already this year, we're handling matters involving threat actor groups that weren't active at all, even just a few months ago. Another trend we're seeing is that for the very first time in the history of the DSIR report, the average ransom paid decreased compared to the prior year. In 2020, the average ransom paid was almost $800,000. Last year, in contrast, it was just over $500,000, so almost $300,000 less than the prior year. And related to this trend is that the average timeline between an organization receiving a ransom demand and making a payment extended from five days in 2020 to eight days in 2021. And this is likely a driving factor in the decrease in the average ransom paid. More organizations have invested in improving their data backup capabilities, which then allows them to continue at least partial operations after a ransomware incident. This in turn puts these organizations in a much better position to negotiate for a longer period of time, which leads to them being able to reach a greater discount in the ransom demand if the need to pay arises. Along those lines, if an organization does not need a decryptor tool and the organization is only paying to prevent further disclosure of their data that's been taken during the incident, they can often take more time to negotiate the demand, again, leading to a deeper discount. And as threat actors evolve and new groups enter the fray, so to speak, it's critical that organizations also evolve and adapt in order to stay ahead. And we'll talk about that some more in a bit. Joe, what is ransomware as a service and how is it complicating payment? 
Ransomware as a service is an arrangement where the developer of a particular type of ransomware will make that ransomware available to different threat actor groups in exchange for either an upfront payment or a share of the ransom payment that they ultimately extract from the victim organization. Because there are different groups using the ransomware variant, it is now more difficult than ever to try to figure out who exactly it is that you're dealing with. If you rewind a couple of years ago, if a client was encrypted with Maze ransomware, you knew it was the Maze ransomware group. If they were encrypted with Ryuk, you knew it was Ryuk. But now with ransomware as a service, you may find that there is you know, a client that has been encrypted with Lockbit or some other ransomware as a service model. Uh, but you don't know which particular threat actor group is the one that deployed that ransomware. It can create difficulties in evaluating whether you are permitted to make payment to that group because there are certain groups that are on sanctions lists. And so if you can't get as good an idea based on the ransomware variant, who exactly it is you're dealing with, you need to make sure that you're taking other approaches to try to get that information. Really what that comes down to, and it's now more critical than ever, is to align with the forensic firm that's conducting the investigation, the ransom negotiator that is engaging with the threat actor, and your outside counsel to evaluate the forensic evidence. The forensic firms have traditionally deployed and continue to deploy tools in client environments that allow them to gather forensic artifacts that they can use to try to determine which group you're dealing with. And we've now also seen some ransom negotiators asking clients to deploy these collection tools in their environments as well. The kinds of things that the forensic firms and the ransom negotiators are looking at is not just the ransomware variant, but what method did the group use to gain access to the network? And then what tools did they use to perform various activities once they were inside? You know, did they use Cobalt Strike to maintain persistence? Did they use R-Clone to steal data? Are there particular, you know, IP addresses or other types of, or other indicators of compromise that are associated with particular groups? And by looking at that, the, the holistic view of the indicators of compromise, the forensic firms and the ransom negotiators can better determine which group they're dealing with. That's not to say that you will ever have 100% certainty. You almost certainly won't, um, but you can get a better idea that will allow you to make and that will allow your forensic firm or outside counsel or ransom negotiators to make a more informed judgment about who the entity is so that you can decide whether you have a basis on which to pay the entity to purchase a decryption key if you need to. Elise, what types of trends are you seeing in the methods of extortion by threat actors? Well, we've been seeing a continuation of the trend where threat actors are exfiltrating data from client networks prior to encrypting their data. Just a few years ago, this scenario was almost unheard of. Now it occurs in most of the ransomware matters we handle. In 2020, 70% of the ransomware matters we handled involved exfiltration of data, and last year it jumped to 82% of the matters we handled. So data exfiltration has become the new normal for ransomware matters. And interestingly, we are seeing a rise in matters where the only method of extortion used by certain threat actor groups is data 
exfiltration. In other words, they're skipping the data encryption step altogether and only stealing data. And then using that data to extort a ransom payment from organizations. Because of this trend, it is even more important for organizations to practice good data hygiene because the less sensitive data you have in your network, the less data a threat actor may be able to steal and as a result would have less leverage to extort a ransom. So for example, organizations should look for and remove old data that is no longer needed and organizations should think about what data they're creating in the first place and why. If a document does not need to contain personal information, then don't include personal information in the document. So thinking through those types of issues regarding data creation are really critical because the fewer files on your network and the fewer files containing less sensitive data on your network for a threat actor to take just means that a threat actor will have less leverage to try to get a ransom payment from you. And finally, I'll note that North Carolina and Florida have very recently passed legislation that prohibits state agencies from paying a ransom or in the case of North Carolina, from even communicating with a threat actor in the event that a ransomware incident occurs. Now, although these laws pertain only to state agencies, we are continuing to monitor these developments because it's clear that all organizations need to take steps to protect their networks and their data. Joe, as a final question, perhaps you could share the steps an organization should take now to prevent or limit the severity of a ransomware attack. Sure. The best way that you can prevent or limit the severity of a ransomware attack is by using a defense in depth approach where you do not rely on any one particular security tool to try to uh, secure your network. Instead, you use multiple different methods to try to gain security. And the ones that I would say are most important in the context of ransomware would be using multi-factor authentication for email and remote access, use an endpoint detection and response tool or EDR tool, have an internal or external security team that's monitoring your environment 24 seven, have a rigorous patch management program, robust backup capabilities, and a business continuity plan. And I'll break down why each of those things is important. So MFA is important because if you have multi-factor authentication for email and for remote access, you reduce the likelihood that the bad guy is gonna be able to get access to your network in the first place. EDR is important because it will give your organization the ability to monitor activity on servers and workstations in real time, and then remotely contain suspicious activity that's identified. But one thing that is important to note with respect to EDR tools is that they can be configured to either block unauthorized activity or just detect and send alerts about it. You should make sure that your EDR tool is properly configured. That's going to you know, mean different things for different organizations. If you have a really robust security team and you're monitoring it all of the time and you have a situation where setting it to block activity is just going to break too many internal processes in your network, then we've certainly seen some clients set it just to detect the activity and not block it. But on the flip side, if you can set it to block it or you, you don't yet have 24-7 monitoring in place, then uh, setting it to block the activity 
is going to be best because just having it fire alerts is not going to do you any good if no one is there to monitor it. That then piggybacks into the third recommendation I made, which was having those teams provide continuous monitoring of your environment. The threat actors know when people are at work, right? I mean, they know that people work a normal workday. So they make a point to try to hit the organizations either in the wee hours of the morning when it's less likely that anyone is actually watching the screen to see alerts or to see the bad guy moving about, or they'll try to hit you on the weekend for the same reason. If you have the staff to have an internal team, we've some we've seen some clients uh, take that approach. Many clients outsource this type of work. I mentioned earlier that you should have MFA in place, but that is not necessarily going to completely prevent a bad guy from getting access to your network. There are other ways they can do it. And one of the ways they can do it is by exploiting unpatched vulnerabilities on devices uh, in your network. So having an up-to-date patch management program uh, is vitally important. If the bad guy does get in, they get around your other security controls, and they do encrypt devices in your network, your backup capability is going to be critical. Having immutable Aragat backups is really where we see a lot of organizations moving at this point so that even if the bad guy does get access to your backups, they can't delete them and they can't alter them. And then lastly, have a business continuity plan in place. Even if you do have good backups, you don't need to purchase a decryption key, there's still a good chance that there's going to be a period of time where your network is down and inoperable you're going to have to manually work around various business processes. Having a business continuity plan in place that outlines how you're going to perform those manual workarounds is going to minimize the disruption to your business. Thanks so much for joining us, Joe and Elise. If you have any questions for Joe and Elise, their contact information is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.